So, Dunk, mm. at this moment in time when we're recording this podcast, two nuclear superpowers are conducting a ground battle in Ukraine mm. whilst carrying out their annual nuclear exercises. What could possibly go wrong there? Yeah, not only what could possibly go wrong there, but they're also practising for the very thing that the war on the ground might escalate into, mm. which makes it more likely to happen. Yeah. Things feel different now from how they did in the Cold War in the 80s. People are talking about tactical nuclear exchanges as a viable possibility. Back then, there was the idea that if anybody went nuclear, it would be the end of the world. But it doesn't sound quite the same these days. No, well, there's been a revision, hasn't there, of some of the myths surrounding nuclear war. Hmm. So, nuclear winter is now considered a myth, given the amount of nukes that we've tested on the planet and the number of volcanoes that have erupted now and in the past, none of which led to uh, a winter described by the modelling that promoted the idea of nuclear winter. Yeah, but still, so, still, it's not an experiment you'd want to run, is it? But still, no. there's this, this idea that it's a, it's a possibility. Yes, and also the radiation after a nuclear strike has also been exaggerated in the past. Mm -hmm. This is at least in terms of what people believe about a nuclear exchange now. The people who have their fingers over the proverbial button. Mm. So this is where we find ourselves. Yeah, except it's worse than that, isn't it? So not only do we have this war in Europe that looks like it might escalate, we have the deindustrialization of Europe that's currently happening particularly in Germany. Mm. We have sabotage of essential infrastructure, also occurring across Europe and the US. Food processing plants, energy infrastructure. Yeah. We have the threat of perhaps the worst famine to ever occur in human history mm. next year, mm. given that most of the developing world depends upon exports from Europe or the US for food. Mm. I saw that the uh, new environment secretary was interviewed about what she was doing personally to prevent climate change, and she talked about the importance of recycling cups. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was well, literally is... it. That was literally all she yeah. could, could formulate. Well, this is the most alarming aspect of the situation, and that is everyone that's in charge cannot see out of the delusion of the particular ideology they find themselves in. They can only double down on what they've done previously. And on top of that, there's <laughs> there's evidence of extraordinary incompetence even in doing that. Yeah. So right now, the political agenda in the EU, remarkably, is pursuing environmental goals, mm -hmm. which means to intentionally reduce the production of food, particularly in places like Denmark. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And it's obvious that they're, they're woefully unaware of the possible consequences of famine as a result of that, mm. as a contributing factor. They seem radically out of touch with the consequences of printing money as a solution to every problem, right? And the inflation that that will cause and the impacts that will have on people who are already in poverty, yeah. you know, across, across Europe. And even in terms of the presumptions behind the realities of nuclear war, Mm -hmm. Right, are informed by a particular delusion in the West. We have this idea, don't we, of mutually assured destruction mm. and that we wouldn't want to exchange nuclear missiles because it would lead to the death of you know millions of civilians. Yeah. Except that's a Western delusion. Only the West believes that because we have 
a democratic basis for government, don't we? We think of war in terms of people and preserving that people at all cost. Whereas Russia, China uh, and so on have a track history of thinking in a different, completely different way. Mm. If there's a problem, you throw human beings at it. So for them, they believe a nuclear exchange is survivable. And not only that, possibly uh, desirable if it changes the current geopolitical unipolar world. Yeah. Now, this is not normally a podcast about current affairs. That's no. not really our audience. We're here to talk about the occult, magic, spirituality. Are we done? Is that what this podcast is? I think so. So, what are we doing? Why are we talking about this? I mean, one of the accusations that's going to be levelled at us is we're engineering worry, we're manoeuvring ourselves into offering some sort of doomsday cult, that we're offering some sort of solution to this. Does spirituality, occultism, offer anything? Offer any refuge to this? What would you say? No. No, I agree. (laughs) None whatsoever. No. You know, you see people like Pete Carroll, Mm. one of the founders of Chaos Magic, you know, organise a magical operation with some pompous name like the Knights of Chaos or whatever. Mm. The intention being to remove Putin from power. Mm, mm. I'm pretty sure that was a magical thing that he did, right? You see on Witch Talk, thousands of teenage girls who are into witchcraft and whatever, you know, like hexing and cursing Putin to get rid of Putin, right? How successful have these people been? Not very so far. Why is that? <laughs> Why is that? What about this? I don't know if, they're, if, <laughs> if these people are aware of this, and it's, it seems unlikely. Putin is actually a moderate. He's a moderate in his government. If he's removed, someone worse, someone worse will step into his shoes. Mm. Mm. Do these people know this? I think they're ignorant, aren't they, of any grown-up evaluation of the situation. Uh, it's merely, you know, Putin's bad, we have to get rid of him. Yeah, you know? yeah. Anyway, so given what's coming down the pipeline for most people, and it will touch everyone in some way, rising... Uh, cost of living, uh, energy poverty, the destruction of the middle class, food shortages, an unprecedented refugee crisis. We've not even talked about the fallout from COVID. Mm, Excess death rates are astronomical at the moment. I mean, some of that's COVID, but a lot of that is the effects of COVID and causes as yet unexplained. Yeah. So what we normally consider occultism or magic, what what does that offer someone when they find themselves in a foxhole? There's this idea behind contemporary occultism where the individual can pick and choose what they prefer to cobble together some kind of personal system or something like that. Or maybe even ascribe to some kind of reconstructed idea of a tradition based on academic research where you you know, you know take what's useful, you scout what isn't. Who's to say that what works for you would work for someone else, right? So there's that idea of the the individual can be the can be the origin of a of a system that could be cobbled together right so maybe you have your tarot cards maybe you have your uh you know your favorite tree spirit that you talk to mm. and your favorite book and so on but are these things that you'll turn to when the lights go out when people you care about are actually sick mm. when there's no food on the table for children I suspect that a lot of this stuff will simply go away. 
Mm. Part of that may also be the inability to stave off the evidence of your senses that the idea that you're in control Mm. and can magically manipulate world events is a delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Why is the world in the state that it's in if it really is the case that so many people are wielding magical power in the way that they think they are? Yeah. Is this the world that they want? It seems to be an inevitable realisation, an inevitable process. I mean, I'm thinking of the time when I was really, really ill, the the illest I've ever been, and everything just fell away. You know, all my meditation skills, all the trances, all the insight into emptiness, the whole lot just vanished, and I've got nothing, mm. absolutely nothing left. And the only thing that went through my mind, and I, well, I do know why, were the words of um, Christ on the cross. Right. <laughs> Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Just kept going through my mind. Mm. And it made me think, even Christ went through that. One of the most mm. realised beings that ever appeared on planet Earth, even that being experienced that of everything, everything falling away in the moment of maximum crisis and suffering. Mm. Do you know what the answer is to that? Do you know what God's response is? Nothing is asked of you, son. Is that in the Bible? No. That answer is the re- resolution to that particular drama. Mm. Nothing is asked of you. Son, yeah. Mm-hmm. Going through that particular drama myself, uh, that's what I was told. I think I know where that might come from. Or some of it, anyway. Mm. In therapy... I've had this myself, you know, and I see it in clients as well. You arrive at an understanding, an insight of why you might do a particular thing, of why something's a problem, and then immediately there's this, so what do I do about it? Mm. What have I got to do? And there's this horrible feeling of frustration. Now you see, now you see the truth. I've got to do something, I've got to do something. It's fear, basically. It's fear is the emotion that prods us to take action. So are you saying that response from God is, in a way, addressing that? There's nothing that you have to do. There, are, there, there isn't anything you can do, you know, in the, in the kind of existential threats that we're talking about. Not always the case in, in other types of issues, of course. Mm. But with this particular drama, it's very specific in terms of the the injustice you believe yourself subject to. Mm. If you ask that question, what do I need to do about this particular drama or kind of suffering that I'm finding myself in? Yeah. What do I need to do about it? The presumption there is that you are subject to the conditions of that drama. Yeah. Or that or that problem already. Yeah. So you're asking what what do I do about it? With Christ on the cross, this is a very specific kind of drama. It's like taking that up to its ideal. The idea that you are going through something as a sacrifice that's necessary, perhaps even at a cosmic level, mm-hmm. in the most profound sense. Right? And it's part of the spiritual process. Mm. Outside of that drama is the realization that God doesn't ask that of you. The divine doesn't ask that of you. Yeah. That's not being asked of you. Yeah. Now, it's something that you can do. <laughs> you can say yes to it and choose to do it. But that burden isn't placed on you by the divine or by God. This is why this idea promoted in the degenerate versions of Christianity that God sacrificed his only son for us. Mm -hmm. 
right, is an awful idea. It's a terrible misrepresentation of the truth. But you can see in Christ, he travels through the same dramas that we have to travel through. Yeah. And then even at the end, there's this ultimate drama, which is, why have I been abandoned to this? Right? Why has everything that's been given to me been taken away? Mm. And in practice, that can even be what feels like the presence of the divine disappearing completely. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That statement isn't just an injunction right, or a, um, an instruction or a statement for you to understand. It comes after the fact. It's a way of putting into words something that's already true because the nature of God is the same thing as your inheritance. So Christ is obviously the son of God. Mm-hmm. We're all the children of God. A child has the same nature as the parent, same nature as the father. So realizing that nothing is asked of you, son, is another way of saying that very same burden can't be applied to God. Because mm. that would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? The idea that that burden would apply to God. That God could be subject to such an injustice. Yeah. So there's something very profound about the resolution of that drama. And it's something that in some form or other, even if it's not at that particular level in terms of profundity, it's something that everyone encounters at some point in their life in some manner appropriate to the degree they're capable of accommodating it yeah what you're saying there is it's the degraded versions of christianity that see it as a sacrifice and i think what you're showing there is how this isn't necessarily a dynamic unique to christianity to christ no well the important thing about sacrifice right by definition means it's a choice that you make right that doesn't have to be made it's something that you do, it's a gesture that you make or an offering that you make that doesn't have to be made. Yeah. That's what makes it a sacrifice. Mm. If it has to be made, that's not a sacrifice. And we do a lot of sacrificing. I was reading something recently mm. that was making that point. You know, we think it's some sort of grandiose spiritual biblical concept, but we're always giving ourselves up to things. We're sacrificing ourselves to I don't know, products. <laughs> jobs, companies, identities. We're doing it all the time. Yeah. So you can think of it as giving yourself up to these things, mm. to these external things. Uh, you might even say that's like um, one way of understanding what idolatry means. Mm-hmm. But another way of thinking about that as well is the sacrifice of others mm. for ourselves mm. or the sacrifice of things for ourselves. God, yeah. Because what is a product other than... Yeah other than a means to an end that's for us that we dispose of when we don't need it anymore right and we feel the same way about others don't we whenever we get angry with someone our first move our first move is to wish them to make choices other than they have made mm. to be other than they are as a as a uh, a wish or a fantasy to extract something that you want from them yeah and that can even be expressed can it as a fantasy around their extinction the world will be a better place if they weren't here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's terrible fear in this when when people are in that place. Terrible fear, but also terrible loneliness as well. That feeling that you get where there's something that you can't get out of and you've got to do something. That feeling of needing to do something it comes from a place of fear, but also from a place of loneliness as well. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, well, I'm thinking mm-hmm. again in in therapy. We get an insight. And we feel that we need to do something to fix this. And who do we turn to? Your first thought is the therapist, but the therapist doesn't know. 
Therapist has mm. no clue what you should do in your situation, in your life. You are alone. And I think that's part of that feeling. When we sacrifice something, we're also cutting ourselves off, I think. We give up our identity to things. And when we sacrifice others, we're cutting ourselves off from them. Mm. But there is another kind of sacrifice, isn't there? There is a way of binding this particular kind of binding. Mm. which is the traditional understanding of magic. You know, the antidote to a binding is a is to bind the binding. Mm-hmm. Right? That that's how you achieve an unbinding. Yes, there's a way out. There's a way out of this this conundrum this the sacrificing of others, which ultimately means the sacrificing of yourself, doesn't it? Yeah. To others or to other things or something like that. Yeah. There's a move there's a move that you can make. Well, um but, sacrificing yourself to well, not a thing. I wouldn't want to sacrifice myself to a thing. <laughs> Because then I'm binding myself to it, aren't I? Well, let's put this in magical terms. Mm. First foot forward of the contemporary magician is the idea that the magical tools that you have serve you in some way. Mm-hmm. What can you get from it? How can how can you manipulate events such that you'll get your desired outcome? So it's you doing the manipulating. The, the origin of the action comes from you. You're the source of it. And you're going to sacrifice others or things right, to achieve that end. Mm. So... I was talking about how if you find yourself in a foxhole, will you be turning to your tarot deck? Mm. Will you be smudging with your sage? <laughs> mm. When the, when you're in a situation where you know there's no way out and nothing works, what do you turn to? Sacrificing others or sacrificing things or using tools to try and manipulate a situation isn't going to do it for you. There's another way of looking at that story of Christ. He said yes to that whole process and walked into it. Yeah. Right? consciously decided to do that now if christ is god who is he sacrificing himself to to god so to sacrifice yourself to yourself Mm. what that means is you recognize the totality of your experience including the most profound experiences you've ever had as some something beneath a horizon that you can't see over but you know that there's something over that horizon greater than the totality of your understanding of yourself at that given moment yeah and that you're willing to give that up, everything that you want to fight with, everything that you want to hold on to, because you take it to be yourself. You're willing to sacrifice that, offer it up, because you don't have to. Yeah. But you're willing to offer it up for something over the horizon of your experience that you can't even put into words, you can't even tell me what it is. But something inside you knows that that's the direction to go in. Yeah. And that's what it means to sacrifice yourself to yourself. There is something prior inside of you that came with you when you were born here. Mm. It's looking for something that's the impetus behind all of your actions, the reason why most people who are authentically engaged with the esoteric engage with it in the first place. Mm. They learn all the practices after the fact, and it's a way of trying to point into words to understand this impetus. But I suppose we've got to distinguish that, because I imagine it can look the same from the outside, from cultures that you were talking about earlier that have a different take on individuality and what that means. Cultures where people will sacrifice themselves to an ideal, generally a political idea or identity. Mm. Well, that in that case, that's someone sacrificing themselves for the herd. Mm-hmm. Mm. So uh, leaders and groups around those leaders possessed by the idea of a herd, and they're willing to sacrifice others primarily for the good of that herd. Yeah, and, and, and the herd is a mm. thing. Presumably, you know, it's a thing in the world, isn't it? Well, here's the thing, that that herd will consume itself until there's nothing left because the herd 
isn't something you can point at. Mm. Like, what part of a group of people who are possessed by an ideology is the herd? Like, what is it? Can you find it? It's like a parasite that has no being of its own. It borrows the being of the people who make up the herd. And you can see, can't you, that it it even destroys the regular, the, the usual natural relationships that we have as human beings. So if a friend or a family member betrays the herd, and to betray the herd, all that means is that you, you're not possessed by the ideology. That's all that means. You don't even have to do anything. Just not belonging to it is enough. right? That They'll be willing to sacrifice those people. And then event, even themselves, eventually, you know, they, they would give their lives for the for the uh, for good of the herd, but that's very different, isn't it, from sac- sacrificing yourself to yourself? Mm. And is. this dynamic that we're, t- that we're talking about can be found everywhere in all cultures, in all times. Mm. There is no other way up the mountain other than following the thread that you find in yourself that says that there's something else or there's, there's something more beyond the dissuasive appearances of your day-to-day experience. The only thing you have to go on is that sense. You can either listen to that voice or or someone or something else. It's up to you. And there's a word for listening to that inner voice that suggests something over the horizon of your reality that you've not even encountered. Faith. To trust that silent knowing that you carry around with you. To trust it. But that's tough. That's tough. Like... When I was ill that time, like I said, all all my meditative tricks and smarts, it all went away. And that's all mm. I was left with. Literally mm. just that. Yeah, the, but, the knowledge, mm. the knowledge that there is something, not the experience, but just no. just the knowledge. Yeah, like a prior knowing. Mm. Yeah. And that will carry you to that realisation. Nothing is asked of you. This wasn't asked of you. Mm. What you've just been through. So in terms of the purpose of this podcast, (laughs) superficially, there's the idea that it's about occultism or magic or something like that. But I would say that something more important is going on, or at least something I regard as more important, Mm. which is that people can recognize a signal amongst the noise. The signal being the events that people are going to experience, that they're going to go through. I mean, we've already been through, and are currently going through, unprecedented historical events yeah yeah and i was thinking back to what you said about the leadership of the west and other nations at this time Mm. where they're they're pressing the same buttons they must be hitting that point that we've talked about maybe sooner than the rest of us it must be extremely apparent to them that the old stuff isn't working anymore i would disagree i would i would say they're not at that point at all right i'd say they're doing the opposite the appropriate response to these events, mm. because they will easily overwhelm people, there will be a preponderance of herds emerging. It's already happened in many different ways over the last few years. Once people have been through that, they're primed to go through it again, and in worse ways. Mm-hmm. Right Now, the, the only antidote to that is following what you know to be true and what you know to be good, right? Which is this faith, this, this, faith, this silent knowing, right? Yeah. We've been talking about it in terms of a very specific kind of drama where everything's taken away from you, you know, in terms of our practice. Mm. And that might translate for some people in their minds as the appropriate political response then would just be to get on our knees and have faith and not do anything, (laughs) right? That's not what it means. It means be honest with the situation in front of your face. Yeah, yeah. Right? And the thing that will carry you through that experience as unpleasant as it may be, as unpleasant as the facts might be on the ground, as horrendous as they might be, the only thing that will carry you through that is something that doesn't come from this world, it comes from somewhere else. 
and we can have trust and we can have faith in that and it w and that's how we travel through it but there's no traveling through it if we pretend it's not there and what we see with leadership in the world is a doubling down or a deepening of the delusion that they're already in mm -hmm. right so what are the chances that the appropriate response to the unprecedented historical events of the last two years is the same thing that our leaders have been doing politically and economically for the last 40 years. It's zilch, isn't yeah. it? But they're doubling down on it. But aren't they at the sharp edge of that very issue and maybe have been for a while? You know, this week, um, the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, he goes and visits a hospital and he talks to an old lady in the hospital and she challenges him. She says, you need to pay nurses more. And he yeah. says, well, you know, we're trying to do that. This idea that giving nurses more money is some sort of problem that needs to be resolved. You know, something, some obstacle in reality is preventing that. Whereas it's a, it's a policy decision. He could do that tomorrow if he wanted to. Mm. Nothing stops him. But it's that same ideology, that same mindset being presented as if it's some kind of material barrier to things. So he's persisting in that same ideology, which doesn't work anymore. It's not going to work. No, but you'll see them double down on it. Mm. So what that looks like is an intentional dismantling of the West. Yeah, it does. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Yes, and they won't see outside of it. These problems are fixable, but, but they're presented as if they aren't. See, what we have is, and this is the function of the, of the herd, mm -hmm. it's a nice and tidy and accelerated putting away of what needs to be put away. So even in their delusion, they'll serve a function. They're like the waste disposal service of a civilization. <laughs> so if we have inflation, right, as a result of the incompetence of lockdowns and the, the injection of money into the financial system, the only response <laughs> that they can have to that to fix it is to print more money, mm. right? Which doubles down on the problem, doesn't it? So the image I'm getting is of a herd, and the more and more that join the herd, the faster and faster and bigger and bigger and more unstoppable it becomes as it rushes towards its inevitable destination. Yeah. So another way of talking about this herd, sometimes I refer to it as like the drowning herd, we spoke about drowning, didn't we, on a previous episode? Yeah. Where what happens when someone's drowning? Well, if you get in the water to help them, you'll be dragged down as well. Yeah. Right. Now, there's a, a motion in, the, in a different direction, though, when this kind of thing happens with the herd. Those people who honour the truth and are not possessed by the ideology and follow something else, usually they end up being repurposed. So they, they come from bizarre walks of life and you suddenly find them doing something that they didn't intentionally see themselves doing, but strangely have been prepared for it mm -hmm. through their past experiences. They step up because they don't see someone doing what, what should be done in that given uh, domain. Yeah. Right? They step up. Those people discover each other, and the qualities that led them to that point become reinforced with that community. Mm. And these are qualities traditionally symbolized by the wild horse. A wild horse can't be tamed, can it? Uh, it also won't run off a cliff. Because <laughs> it's not in a herd. Yes. So you have you have something like the herd and the horse, or the wild horse. Mm. Right Now, of course, wild horses will come together, but they are free in the expression of their own fundamental nature. And they will move as their instincts tell them to move. Mm. Right? And, they, and they won't be tamed. The herd, on the other hand, 
you can think of that as those are tamed animals and their captivity is driving driven them insane the free-floating anxiety of being atomized individuals has primed them for ideological possession such that they will uh, they will destroy themselves so when i say the wild horse as a, as a traditional symbol you i'm thinking particularly of uh, chinese alchemy mm-hmm. uh, but you, obviously you find it in lots of other different traditions and so that's the purpose of the podcast i like to think <laughs> is that other people following something and even if they don't have words for it can recognize other people doing the same thing yeah and that can be important because when you're surrounded by a herd, you might start to wonder if it's actually yourself that's the problem. Mm. Actually, maybe you're crazy. Maybe you're the crazy one. And you can end up being gaslit as a result of that. Mm. Mm. Right? It's important that people can see other people following this thread. Well, it would mitigate those feelings that we were talking about earlier of fear and loneliness, which is basically the emotional tone of what it's like to be in this situation. It's not necessarily going to save you, though. Well, here's the other thing about faith, or trust in that silent knowing. And I mean this in a, in a literal sense. And I suspect some people interested in occultism and magic will be hysterical at the thought of this. <sighs> but if you follow that silent knowing, it's possible for you to know beforehand what might happen. And also what it is that you need to do to survive a certain circumstance or, or set of events. Right, to be guided. But you have to be listening. You have to be willing to listen. Yeah. You have to be you have to be willing to be open to such guidance to follow something else. Yeah. That means following something else other than what we normally take to be ourselves. Our best ideas, our best plans, our expectations, our preferences, our sophisticated intellectual systems that we've put together from our reading, where we've taken what's useful and discarded what's useless. Mm. That that listening or that following of that thread is not manipulative. If you take it with that approach, that's not listening at all. And maybe one thing that is revealed that seems to be coming down the line is that dynamic of the herd that you talked about it's going to run this it's going to accelerate it's going to get faster and faster it's going to go through to the inevitable conclusion isn't it how do you mean what do you mean so you're talking earlier about how the herd is even in its relentlessness it's useful it's a way of bringing the end to things it's a way of tidying up putting things away and I think we need to point out there that that sounds very much like accelerationism, Nick Land, all that stuff associated with far-right thinking. Mm. That's not something that I would advocate, that anyone would advocate. It's something that's already happening. Well, I would say it's not happening. And the reason I would say it's not happening is because the ideologically possessed mm-hmm. are not doing what they're doing to accelerate an end. They don't know what they're doing. And when they get their... The results contrary to what's promised by the drama or the role that they're playing. Yeah, the only thing they know how to do is double down on it. So it's a it's a phenomenon yeah. rather than a philosophy. Yes, and then for those people following the thread we've been talking about, right, the signal amongst the noise. Yeah, you don't concern yourself with the noise. No, you don't concern yourself with the drowning. You don't jump in with them. Instead, you grow what you care about. Yeah, grow what you care about. You don't fight with a shadow. Mm. Right? You grow what you care about. This isn't a political ideology. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's tragic. This isn't what is wished for when it comes to the end of a civilization. But collective choices have been made over time. And, you know, Carl Jung said, what was required to get us through the coming maelstrom were precisely those Christian values that we've discarded. Mm. That's what would have carried us through from the end of this civilization into what's coming next. So what we're left with now 
is uh, mainly this thread that we've been talking about. Mm. A thread that will lead through the through the darkness, maybe for a few centuries, until something new is possible. But it's uh, a thread akin to what we find in the darkness of the failings of Western Christianity over like the last thousand years. And that's something like alchemy, how that survived during Europe as a, as a thread yeah. amongst the darkness. Um, so it's not like we've not been through it before, except this time, of course, there will be different, it'll be a different level of catastrophe, given the number of human beings on the planet. Do you think we need to get things in books <laughs> rather than in podcasts and on websites? Because none of that stuff is going to be around when the lights go off, is it? One thing I would say is, although it's important to read the sea, so to speak, to understand what weather we're going to have to sail through, getting lost in speculation about terrible outcomes yeah. is not the same thing as following the thread. If you're following that thread, that dictates what it is that you do. Yeah. So the reason I launched the branch of the Arcanum Arcanorum that I did is because, it, because of following that thread. Mm -hmm. The reason why we're doing this podcast is because of following that thread. The reason I recently went to Berlin and did a talk there is following that thread. Yeah. I trust that following that thread is the intelligent thing to do. When you came back from your talk in Berlin, however, <laughs> mm. it wasn't a pleasant experience. And I don't think you were grateful for specifically where that thread led you in that instance. Well, this is a, this is a good example. Following the thread and what came out of following the thread it has the same nature as following that thread was perfectly good right was wonderfully good <laughs> i gave a talk and it was all following that thread and it was all about talking about that thread but then i was uh invited to do an interview for a documentary where i did have to address what it was that i'd seen for the last three days at this conference but even then i was still describing following the thread even though what i had to encounter was unpleasant so my experience in Berlin was to see something, a spirit moving through the world, and the people possessed by that spirit who've said yes to it, because that's what possession means. It means you say yes to it and continue to say yes to yeah. it. When you could change your mind. And I saw the detriment that that causes. And when I gave the interview for the documentary, I sat in their temple where they'd opened the conference by invoking this spirit that I'm talking about. Uh -huh. Now, the human side of me, on reflection, felt traumatized by going through the experience of those three days in the environment, in the way that they'd set it up and the things that I saw. And I was also livid. I got filled with rage the more I reflected on the situation. Yeah. I mean, I remember you saying there was a certain aesthetic to the conference. There was artworks on display, performances. You know, presumably that's what you're it, talking about there, the effect of those. Yeah, it was all concerned with the debasement or the mutilation of the human form. What I might sum up as to be disturbed or traumatised for your own good. I saw at least one person with PTSD. She was a broken soul. As a result of some of the practices that were celebrated there, I saw the use of taboo sexual imagery to disturb, right, flirting with paedophilia. And I remember you saying that this was unannounced. This was not something that was you know, advertised in advance, it was sprung upon the audience. This was an event open to the public mm -hmm. and there were lots of young people there in their 20s, let's say. Right. 
And whether people want to recognise this or not, there are celebrity occult figures who act as models, role models for people, who act as mouthpieces to speak on behalf of traditions or the culture or something like that. And under the pretense of paying lip service to ideas of personal responsibility, those people shirk that responsibility and are willing to throw those less experienced or naive people under the bus right, into into the meat grinder to serve this this spirit or this momentum of disturbing people or traumatizing people for their own good that was the entire theme and spirit of the event yeah and it was hard to be there by the time i got to do my talk on the third day i'd seen so much stuff how much of indulging your anger or your sense of entitled vengeance or something like that is turning away from following the thread yeah, yeah. And, and fighting with a uh, shadow yeah. so I think what was accomplished was accomplished regardless of how well I understand it or not and that was an outcome from, from following the thread yeah. I, went, I went because I was told to go by a dream so images of mutilation torture, traumatised people, images of taboo sexual practices, images suggestive of paedophilia. That uninvited traumatisation of the audience through coming into contact with that. What do you think this is a debased image of? Traumatisation for your own good. What good is mistakenly obviously being served there do you think transgression of this nature is a parody isn't it of liberation yeah that's my sense yeah yeah the idea of destroying boundaries exposing yourself to having your boundaries destroyed yeah (laughs) self-sacrifice it's a parody of the sacrifice we were talking about right this idea that uh, if you take an heroic dose of some psychedelic, maybe that will smash down the barriers and you'll you'll achieve enlightenment or something like that. That's flirting with trauma, isn't yeah. it? Uh, I know people who have PTSD from doing that kind of thing. I've seen many of them. Um, of course, that kind of activity was also included there in the conferences, along with sadomasochistic practices. And it's that idea that if you're traumatized or disturbed, that's for your own good, because now you've broken down a barrier now you've transgressed now you have a great degree of freedom and it's tricky isn't it because you can't really say I think that spiritual practice genuine spiritual practice is a safe space it is going to be challenging it is going to be difficult yeah but it has nothing to do with transgression transgression is a fundamental misunderstanding of the principle of balance yeah well transgression is you know the violation of social norms I I imagine is how we're defining it yeah if we look at someone like Alistair Crowley he's often celebrated for his transgressive character Mm -hmm. however the idea with Crowley was for you to assess where you're unbalanced right where you have excesses in one direction so if you were sexually uptight well then you should perhaps be more promiscuous go on sexual adventures Uh, but vice versa if it's the case that you're hedonistic maybe you should practice being a monk for a while take up celibacy and sobriety and the idea was to to balance out your personality 
to account for all of the elements uh, in your being such that you reflected the totality of cosmology. Because if you're unbalanced when it comes to genuine mystical experience, which he would describe as union with the Holy Guardian Angel or the crossing of the abyss, right? if you're unbalanced, that could lead to your destruction. Uh-huh. So the idea is that this was preparation. What that's translated to is a convenient, watered-down idea that the transgressing of social norms is the same thing as magical practice mm. or liberation, which today just looks like doing what you'd be doing anyway. <laughs> So taking lots of drugs, having lots of sex, getting drunk, doing what you want. I'm flirting with the edge of that if you've bought into this parody of wisdom, you know, that masquerades as the esoteric. And of course, we contrasted in the last episode that with what true will actually is. Yeah, this spirit that we're talking about, this Mm. nameless God, which feels like or looks like, you know, pursuing this trauma for your own good. The debasement of the human, the removal of the human from the centre of creation. Mm. The mutilation and destruction of the human being is a spirit moving through our culture. One of the reasons why what I saw there was so extreme is because there are very little taboos left in our culture. Things can still get weirder. Things can still get worse. If we put the image of what that God looks like in terms of what we're worshipping, what would it look like? Something Baphomet-ish, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Something gender-fluid. Uh, something uh, bestial like a furry something involving technology in some sense yeah. like maybe some uh, um, yeah. something to do with a cyborg <laughs> something like something that something not dead or alive right mm. yeah and, and that would end up looking like the idol the thing that we're actually worshipping and that's what I encountered at that conference in a deindustrialized building whilst it pursues ever extreme versions of being disturbed for its own good this is a nameless god. Yeah. So it's got some of the attributes associated with Baphomet, but different in some ways, I imagine. Well, Baphomet, as conceived of by the chaos magic current, is really the god of all life on Earth. Yeah. Right. So it's so it's more like Pan or some in the conventional sense. Yeah, it's the integration of everything, isn't it? Like reptiles and mammals and fishes and lizards and male and female and life as a as an amalgamation whereas the spirit that i'm talking about has got nothing to do with the natural world and everything to do with the with malevolent intent because to to intentionally disturb someone right is malevolent isn't it yeah you can't give consent to be disturbed because then you wouldn't be disturbed you can't give consent to be traumatised because then you wouldn't be traumatised. You can give the appearance of giving consent out of naivety, but then it's too late, isn't yeah. it? And people who know exactly where this kind of spirit leads are happy to stand up on stage at an event like the conference I'm talking about and happily lead people in that direction. There's something in this spirit about emulation. It's almost like it calls for us to emulate it. It represents the debasement of the human and it wants mm. us to debase ourselves Baphomet is you know an impossible amalgamation of things you can't be Baphomet because you know it's it's a god and and it represents something beyond human experience but this entity that you're describing it sounds as if you're being invited to be like it as in its nature is that which is debased yeah 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 well there's a mystery around the fact that it doesn't have a name it's nameless or unnamed. 
A nice reference is Philip K. Dick's Radio Free Album, the last novel that he published before he died, mm-hmm. where he talks about this spirit and the fact that it has no name. It has been given names in other traditions. When you examine the name, it's not really a name. It's more like a description of a characteristic that it has, something like that. To be unnamed is another way of saying to be unrecognized or to be hidden. To name something, as in to give it its true name, would be to make conscious what its real nature is. Now, if the true nature of this God was revealed, no one would believe it. No one, no one would follow it. No one would walk in that direction. The trick that it plays is to fool you into thinking you've said yes to something. So you get this promise of, let's say, liberation mm-hmm. or growth in wisdom or something like that. But what it gets you to do is to traumatize yourself. Right? You get this parody, don't you, of some states described by wisdom traditions. Depersonalization, derealization. It's a disconnection from things. Mm. These have got absolutely nothing to do with awakening, with enlightenment, with spirituality, with fundamental truth. Absolutely nothing to do with them. They are pathological mental states. Yeah, trauma, which is the destruction of the self, isn't it? Not the opening up, not the liberation from, but destruction, harm, injury. Yeah. So this God remains unnamed because that's how it operates. But if you were to name it, you'd be free of it. And the reason you'd be free of it is because of a similar dynamic to what we were talking about when it came to Christ on the cross, when he was saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And the response is, nothing is asked of you, son. Do you know where I'm going with it? This is asking you something, isn't it? This deity, that, that's all it does. Yes, it asks you to go through it. Yeah. It's what's required to get to the other side, your self-destruction. But if you name it and describe it, give it its real name, bring it into the light, you'll eventually discover that it has no being of its own other than what you give it, right? which makes it a parasite. That's what a parasite is. It has no being of its own except for what you give it. But to get to the point where one sees that this kind of a spirit moving in the world has no place in creation, isn't intended for you by the divine, you must first uncover its malevolence and spell it out and see it for what it is. So that looks like a descent into hell. So you get these stories, don't you, about Christ descending into hell? Yeah. And you also find the same motif in other, in other traditions with other deities. And so bringing it to light, making it clear, spelling out what was going on at that, in that place, as I did with the documentary, yeah. it is enough to present people with a conscious choice. right? But now they're informed. And, and that's also the opposite of trauma, isn't it? There's choice. There's you know, some degree of consent to that. There's freedom, and trauma takes away all those things. So over the coming months, years, people will be asked to make choices, whether that's from a herd or particular events or experiences. But it's good to be clear about what choice you're being presented with and what the reality of that actually is and what the consequences will be. And whether or not you're being misled. And the only thing you can really rely on in any situation is the thread that we've been talking about. Mm. What we carry around inside of ourselves that tells us what's right. And really the choice always comes back down to whether you listen to that voice or another one. <laughs>